Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined again by Terry Robinson, and we're going to give you an episode of Tomes of Magic. And in this episode, we are going to walk the bitter road of the bitter road. So before I launch into it, I've just got to kind of hold the phone here for a minute because I, I started recording with Terry here, and I'm noticing something little odd there, Terry, you know, it, it can't be hidden. Uh, it's like a sort of resonance on you, perplexity, uh, confusion, something like that. It, maybe you could just uh, key us in on that. So when you say resonance, are you talking about resonance that comes from, I have been uh, neck deep in updating my, my SRD and it is moving along swimmingly. And the closer I look at Mage, the closer I realize it is not actually a game. It is a pile of subsystems inside of a trench coat trying to get into an R-rated movie. And I still love it. I look forward to finishing it and sharing it with all of our fans. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, well, that explains it. I was, I was going to say perplexifying. <laughs> well, after going through some of the subsystems of Mage, I think you couldn't uh, couldn't blame me for that. But. <laughs> The entry on blessings is two pages. Ah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing that, though, because uh, even though I, I love Mage and I just enjoyed it so much over the years, I'm not, I guess, by nature, a, a real rules detail guy. I, I came up with two or three rather simple house rules back in the day, and I was proud I'd thought of it, and then I got in touch with more Mage fans. I was like, oh, okay, you guys really plumb the depths of these rules a lot more than than I did when I was uh, running games. But I'm glad somebody has, because it uh, really benefits all of us. We can look over the, the work you produce and line things up and see uh, what we agree with and what we may not want to introduce into our games. So let's talk about The Bitter Road. This is a book for revised edition. I consider it to be the, the first supplement, because uh, before this, we have just had the, the Storyteller screen, which was wrapped with the Overflow book and then the core book itself. We're really glad that this was the first supplement for revised edition because this takes a very careful and detailed look at revised edition as a whole, the setting, the rules, everything involved with what is revised edition. And it gives us a really clear explanation of many things, an elaboration of many things, and helps us get into the mindset that the uh, revised edition writers had in mind when they were putting that edition together and bringing it to us. So it uh, clocks in at 119 pages. We have three different authors for this book and two additional authors, uh, one of whom is Jess Heinig himself. Before we really launch into uh, a detailed description of it, I think it's uh, time for that overview, uh, the walkthrough, chapter by chapter. Terry, can you help us out? The book opens with a prelude. Before the prelude, there's a bunch of characters with tribal tats, and nothing screams 1990s RPG supplements in a modern setting like tribal tattoos. And every time I see it, it reminds me of some of the musical quotes we had in some of the earlier books where I'm like, wow, this is impressively dated. And with that, the prelude fiction, we are introduced or reintroduced to the characters from the end of second edition, Kyle and Leanne. They are at some sort of meeting. Kyle's the new person. Leanne is talking with her cabal mates and they're discussing uh, how to reestablish contact with everyone else. And Leanne does the reasonable thing when you have a apprentice that's new to the world and trying to figure things out and really needs guidance where you just throw them into the deep end. And suddenly Kyle is chosen to be the herald for the cabal. Kyle doesn't really yet have a tradition and they just kind of throw them into the deep end and that 
sets the pace for what's going to be in this book. Coupled quickly with the introduction, which is a short piece of fiction between a character by the name of Zoka, quite sure how to pronounce it, XOCA, who is spending time, we think, somewhere in Central or South America, trying to get a, a rescue from Mark Gillen, the noted hermetic errant. And there's a back and forth where they're negotiating, how are you going to get me out? I don't know. What are you going to give me for it? I got a bunch of stuff. You got stuff? Yeah, I got stuff. Okay, I'll take the stuff. And then it gives just an overview. The prelude impressed me because uh, just like the uh, revised edition core book, this prelude does its job very well. It's it's The author's not trying to show off their literary talents or anything. It's just a no-nonsense, hey, we're going to give you a short fiction. It's going to give you a nice, convenient snapshot of what's going on here, what this book is about. And it just starts the book off very efficiently, very well. Chapter one is entitled Welcome to the War. And several of the chapters in the remainder of the book include little commentaries from from X to Kyle. And while I love these little asides, the font they chose to me was utterly illegible in the PDF. So I had to select those areas, open a notepad program, paste it in, and then read it that way. But besides from that, Oh, wait, are you talking about the, the comments with the little X dot at the yeah. bottom? Yeah. Okay, so, I was reading the, the physical book that I bought. You know, it's, it's several years old now. And for the first time in all of my rate mage reading, I actually got out this giant oversized magnifying glass, held it over the page, <laughs> and then I could kind of puzzle it out. Yeah. Every other part of the book I could read unaided. But every time X speaks, I need the magnifying glass. I feel better now. The doddering old men have made the podcast attempt to read <laughs> early 2000s fonts. And then later they have a different epistolary font that is slightly more legible, but only slightly. Chapter one, Welcome to the War, is a conversation between Mark Gillen and someone by the name of uh, Jamie, who has left their tradition, lost their apprentice, and is wandering around New York City. And the purpose of this section is really to give you an idea of what the world of revised looks like it it really sets tone and uh kind of reframes the game over man no more pork chop sandwiches view of the world that we get in the revised core book where everyone thinks like everything sucks everyone everyone's watching the crow now and listening to emo music and things like cool it that we've got some good things going on and in the process of this conversation they come to a couple of conclusions one is to replace the idea of the traditions lost with the realization that the traditions could never win that in the process of trying to fight the technocracy to make the world mystical that's not something they're ever going to be able to do so now they need to focus on smaller victories during this conversation they they kind of come to the conclusion that this inevitability was something they should have realized centuries ago also to a certain extent they blame the technocracy when it wasn't the technocracy's fault and this is kind of explained through an aside where one of the characters realizes that their father who told them that their mother had been killed by the technocracy had indeed just been killed by them after they had been drawn into darkness and that the fact that the technocracy was organized and everyone was on the same page and pulling in the same direction the traditions would have needed to have done that centuries ago for it to make sense uh, with that in mind it's one of those things where i think back to the fragile path and kind of come to the conclusion to be like oh like the fragile path is not fundamentally a document of hope it is a warning that if the traditions can't get their stuff together, they're going to have great difficulty. And it takes them over four centuries to do that. Not until the latter half of the 20th century does it get even close. And by then, they just haven't had enough time to do what they want to do. 
It talks about how the Nefandi seem to be not quite as active as they used to be. It talks about how the technocrats have kind of pulled inward, how the pogrom isn't nearly as active as it used to be, which is something the book says in several places, which to me was useful because in the revised core book, in some cases it talks about the technocracy ramping up, and in other cases it talked about the technocracy pulling back. Uh, and here it, it kind of gives the impression that uh, the technocracy took advantage of initial confusion to do a lot of strikes against crass disfrits and the traditions, but after that and and the full ramifications of the Avatar Storm came through, or to them the dimensional anomaly, that they kind of pulled inside. Uh, the, the other big thing it asks is, so what do we do now and what is the state of everything? It talks about how the previous setup resulted in training periods that were too long, that power was viewed as a tool of advancement, and that eventually, after the destruction of Duizatep and the Concordia War tore a hole across Horizon, that the traditions disbanded, more or less. That this idea of having a unified group that is going to take the fight to the technocracy was no longer a good use of resources. And the book makes mention of everyone realized things were serious when the Akashics and the Euthanatoi agreed that things were kind of no longer going in a useful direction. And it gives kind of a list of here are the key changes in the setting or the way the magical hierarchy has been upended and what to do with that. For instance, dis uh, disciples are now taking apprentices. People with three or fewer dots are training people, sometimes in a group setting, that people need to find their own way, that the traditions kind of got into this power game because they needed to have things to offer people to get them to stay, that their training was long and arduous and so on, and only by giving them goodies could you get people to, to stick around. The Nefandi seem to also not be doing anything. The main resources that normally backed the council are largely gone. And then it gives a list of what the traditions may be up to, like the Euthanatoi are hunting vampires a lot, the Verbena and the Dream Speakers are looking for signs about what's happening in the world uh, from the spirit world. Some, like the Sons of Ether and the Hermetics, are, are keeping up the fight. But also they note that the Alibatine may have returned, and a lot of people were like, yay, and other people were like, ah, shit, they're back. And the over overriding thing is the idea that we no longer get to hold the hands of initiates, that one of the flaws we may have made is by pulling apprentices away to cloistered places to train the magic, we never actually gave them the real tools to be mages. And that kind of draws us down on, on chapter one. I thought it was interesting that they took the uh, fictional cabal of mages that called themselves the Associates, which always makes me think of the syndicate, but they were tradition mages who called themselves the Associates, and we first heard about this uh, cabal of mage characters in uh, Orphan Survival Guide. And uh, it, it deals with them in more detail uh, here, and I think in, in one or two uh, previous revised edition books. And what was kind of interesting to me is it leaves out the personal failings of the mages in that cabal that was talked about in um, when they were first introduced in Orphan Survival Guide. It, it said that the problems they had was they were very materialistic and self-centered and uh, they wanted to, you know, party and, and spend large amounts of money and, and be seen by lots of people. And, and that kind of, you know, bit them in the, in the rear end uh, after some time. But when we get the associates discussed in these revised edition books, it kind of leaves out that failing. And it, it seems to explain that uh, these bad things that happened to them were a result of the poor decisions that the traditions were making. And so that gives a more strong uh, revised edition uh, turn on that. The writing here in chapter one, I think, um, again, it's, it's efficient and it is 
has a real sense of direction. When I read chapter one, it's like everything is pulling in the same direction at the same speed. It wants to explain certain things about the uh, revised edition setting, which is, of course, quite different from the second edition setting. And it sticks to its topic, and it does that well. And so I liked that. When you're reading this chapter, keep in mind that the portrayal of the traditions is linked to a different goal than in previous editions. And so because of that, we get a slightly different portrayal of what the traditions have been like for the past four centuries, what they've been doing for the past four centuries. But as long as you keep that in mind, then uh, yeah, by all means, uh, this is definitely um, a, a good chapter to give you a snapshot of what that setting is like. It's also the first chapter that kind of gives you an idea of what this book is going to try and do in terms of give you ideas for the sort of stories that you can run or may be interested in playing in in this new revised world. One of the asides that Zoka writes is what sort of unfinished businesses are we going to have to clean up? I'm sure that the masters didn't plan on leaving all their pet projects unattended here on Earth. And then it mentions, I foresee a lot of cursed wonders, berserk automatons, wards, and time-space anomalies. And we need to clean these up before they get out of hand. And it's just to me, that's like the de devs elbowing a table being like, eh? Story idea? Huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I am perfectly fine with that. The more, the more you do that, the better. <laughs> Chapter two is kind of, to me, broken down into two big sections. One, we follow the awakening and adventures of a newly awakened mage as they piece together what mage life is like. And then the second half of the chapter is more or less a whole bunch of chronicle types that you could possibly run. In the opening story, we get a man that receives premonitions of their awakening by the name of Ozymandias Cody. Uh, he has a conversation with their avatar, which seems to kind of be on autopilot and, and just kind of nudging them through. Something happens where a character is at a party and then and then things go absolutely sideways with strange people appearing and being torn limb from limb and then they're they're on the run in some magical mage car and he meets up with a uh, a group of mages that does essentially magical hits on people where they're the systems of mailboxes that they drive around to that have money resonant objects and maybe an address in them uh, and that he just kind of tools around and picks up information from them and then he and this other character uh, take out take out bad guys and then the avatar storm hits and everything goes sideways and one character is destroyed by the avatar storm uh, another one kind of decides to lean into it as well and is also consumed by it and it is just the remaining two or three characters saying, okay, what do we do now? Additionally, it kind of walks you through the idea of how can a mage balance their personal life, their unawakened life with their awakened life? And the answer is often that's really hard. I found it really helpful as an example of the kinds of stories, kinds of chronicles that they had in mind. I mean, the revised edition writers had in mind. So it was very helpful for me because, of course, coming to this book, I had my notions of, uh, you know, from previous editions, reading all those books and the games I ran, you know, a few years back, thinking, oh, this is how we put together a mage story. This is how we pull players into it. And this, these are the sort of examples, or, and these are sort of situations we're going to lay out for our players. And reading this, it was, it was very good. It's like, oh, this is a very different way to structure uh, mage games, but it works and it does fit with revised edition. Yeah, it, it clicks better with uh, what I just read in the revised edition core book. So that was very helpful for me. 
And, and that section is partially explanatory of the chronicle type they call Secret Identity Man, which is to say a character that is trying to balance an awakened and an unawakened life as well as how to keep a job. And one of my favorite sections is where it talks about how to use magic in the workplace and more importantly, not to. And it brings up uh, three impediments to to doing magic in the workplace. One is botching. Uh, eventually stress will get to you and something will go sideways and mortals just don't take well. Sleepers just don't take well to paradox. Uh, the second is resonance. So now it's a game system. They want you to be using it more. And uh, it includes the line, a mage with gooey resonance can bet that it will show up unpleasantly in her job. And I'm like, okay, that's a, they picked a real evocative one to, uh, to, to use as the example. And the third is the technocracy, that they're, they are actively monitoring people who do fancy pants things to try and pull money out of the system, and that the technocrats are, are game on, on detecting people via their resonance. The rest of the chapter is a couple of other chronicle ideas. One they give is the university mage, which is mage on a college campus. And to me, the important part about this system is it answered kind of a critical question that Adam and I have talked about how it's evolved over the course of Mage of how do mages find other mages? And it talks about a character who awakens, realizes that something is different. Um, they try and keep it under wraps initially, and then they realize this is just not going to work. And they start poking their way around campus trying to find if there's anyone like them. And after something like a year of searching, the character does find one other person, this teacher that takes on students for, let's just say, extra classes, which sounds a little bit naughty when I phrase it that way, but in this case, it's magical stuff. And it goes over, here's how different traditions might pick different areas of the academic world. So if you want to do a, a low-stakes college campus chronicle, it gives you all the information that you need there. And by low-stakes, I don't mean unimportant, but just like Maybe, maybe you're not nudging any of the main factions in the Ascension War, which was kind of interesting. It then goes over uh, three or four other types. It talks about the Traveling Chronicle, and in the Traveling Chronicle, what I do like is it talks about what do backgrounds mean when you're traveling everywhere. And it talks about how instead of node representing access to one secure node, it may be you have a vague idea of general areas around the world where you can get quintessence. And mechanically, it gets you to the same place. Your character is able to recover a certain amount of quintessence. And I'm like, this I like. It talks about the, the big business chronicle that you will be viewed as a sellout, but you will be financially secure, and the money that you dedicate towards other causes can do a, a good amount of work within the traditions. One of the recurring things is you have a stereotype in your head of how each tradition can be represented, and its goal is to kind of broaden that. Later on, when we talk about what's happened to the traditions, we'll discuss how Revised kind of changes the view of things. But in addition to that, we also get the Medical Chronicle, which seemed pretty specific, but I thought was kind of interesting. Mage as healers. And it's like, uh, you probably don't want to do this unless you have a large amount of karmic debt to pay off. And I always like when a book is like, here's a thing you can do, but you probably shouldn't. And sometimes I'm like, oh, thanks for the advice, Jesse Heinig. In other cases, I'm like, challenge accepted, Jesse Heinig. And then the chapter ends with a bunch of other lifestyle chronicle choices you can have, whether it be law enforcement or the family or oriented mage or the underworld. And I guess my only overarching comment on this section was that in Destiny's Price, we learned how to run a game 
in a city and in Horizon Stronghold of Hope, we learned how to run it in a chantry and in Book of Worlds, we learned how to run it in the other worlds. And this finally answers the vital question of how do you run a game in the suburbs? I thought that was pretty fascinating. It had a very cynical tone, which for me, I mean, just my personality was kind of off-putting, but I, I can't complain about that because it fit with the kind of vibe that the writers wanted for this book. And so it was appropriate, but it wasn't something I necessarily enjoyed. Roughly the second half of chapter two was, I thought, very well conceived because uh, it seems like all of those you know shorter sections put together, is it, it focuses on professions, on player character professions. Uh, it talks about the, the, univer- the mage at university. It's like, okay, are you administrator, staff, student at some university? Then there's medical. It's like, are you doctor, nurse, et cetera, big business, and you know all these other places. It's like, how can you construct a mage story based around the career, the work that your player character does. And so this profession-based approach to chronicle building was, uh, it's something new for mage. It's something that I think is going to be very helpful for people. And it's very appropriate for revised edition. It's like, okay, now that you're no longer going off to Horizon Realms and walking the Umbra, and you may not even be traveling around the world as much because of all the the, uh, heavy stuff that's coming down, um, how can you put together a chronicle? Well, why don't you look at the player characters' professions and start from there? And this is very helpful for them. When you mention this cynicism, I just get the feeling that like no one who ever worked at White Wolf had a satisfying job that involved wearing a tie. Like <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I generally like my coworkers and I find my work to be useful and engaging. I just wish it didn't take as much time. <laughs> Terry, you don't get it, man. I, I don't. I don't in a fundamental <laughs> way. Like um it, just kind of different life experiences. And again, that to me is the the origin of the hatred of the hermetics and hatred of the celestial chorus. Chapter three talks about traditional ties and kind of I don't want to quite say completely reinterprets the traditions, but the goal of this chapter, to me at least, seems to be we're going to give you a lay of the land of what's happening in the world of of mystic magic. It gives an idea that early on, we're talking thousands of years ago, it made no sense to band together as a group of magical practitioners. Magic alone was easier. No one would disagree with you. Reality was very fluid. In most cases, the complications that come from dealing with other people like getting everyone on the same page and petty bickering and arguing wasn't worth the cost as reality began to kind of slowly form the hermetics in the chorus were the first two proto traditions as it were to form and they had a massive rivalry between one setup that was driven kind of by faith another one that was in some ways pseudoscientific and in this rivalry the order of reason rose the non-technomantic mages kind of realized that we needed to join together. And with that, they kind of fell into traditions. And that to them, there were three parts of fighting the Ascension War. The first was to fight for sacred places, that nodes were important and quintessence gave them power. The second was to give sleepers options. So as opposed to just saying, this is what we're doing now, going, this is what we could be doing now. And then finally was to defeat the opponents by any means necessary. And it's interesting in that the it introduces the idea of a chronicle of exploration, which is a chronicle type I am fond of, where you're going out there and learning things and finding stuff. I also appreciate that like the travel chronicle, it's like, this is hard for a storyteller because they have to keep coming up with new stuff. And I'm like, thanks, book. I appreciate that. And then it moves into an idea of what are the 
current state of the traditions. And it's interesting, we get the update in the core rulebook, but this feels different. It talks about, after the Avatar Storm, what each tradition is dealing with. And this ranges from the Euthanatoi with the fall of the House of Helicar are the hardest hit and no one trusts them. And the Dream Speakers are dealing with internal strife over whether or not they should modernize or, or stick to traditional ways. The Verbena have to deal with their stereotypes. The, the cultists have been unable to seize the popularity of their cultural advances during the 90s, that the Chorus is keeping too many secrets, that the Akashics are powerful, but their masters uh, are incapable of using modern tools, and the Sons of Aether lack respect and are not considered full members. And then it mentions the Virtual Adepts, and they're like, yep, they're doing great. I guess that's one way I'm looking at it. I was really expecting kind of a downside there, like because because in Mage, it's always like, oh, this is pretty great, but you have to deal with this. In this case, it's like Virtual Adepts, two thumbs up. We get an update on the... Uh, disparates. And the thing I liked about this section is it does, it divides the disparates into three halves. Go mage. The first half don't know what's happening. The other half ran to the tradition and the third half are burying their heads in the sands going la 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 la. Nothing's different. It then goes through what are the changes that have happened to the technocracy. It says that the NWO are shaken up by the fact that they're, they're heavy thinkers. The people who kind of set intellectual policy are gone. The syndicate is interesting in that most of their masters were earthbound. So of any of the conventions, they are the one that still has most of their, their power base. The void engineers are in a holding pattern after the avatar storm. The iterators are on a quest for discovery, investigating dimensional science. Uh, some are trying to frantically explore their newly found freedom and others are frantically trying to reestablish a connection to the machine. And then it's like, the progenitors, they're creepy and largely unchanged. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that sounds that sounds like the progenitors. Not everything has changed in this edition. It talks about kind of what politics looks like. It talks about the kind of survival rules, as it were, if a character wishes to continue to engage with the traditions of don't expect to ever be praised, but be ready to kind of kiss up at least a little bit that who you know is often more important than what you know because of the importance of other people in your survival, that the normal hierarchies have broken down and it is now kind of less obvious as to who knows what, that if your tradition is full of self-aggrandizing people, it's pretty obvious that if they introduce themselves as like blah blah master of forces, being like, well, blah blah is a jerk, but I really need to talk to a master of forces and it's literally in his name, so I can probably talk to him about it and how that is, that is kind of gone. It goes over factions, the idea that traditions more than most are just clubs of kind of shared interest or shared overarching meta paradigms or alternatively just kind of a shared view of ascension and that most contain several internal paths that if you join a faction you may have access to new toys and so on or to wonders or rotes and ranks and protocol you can form your own if you want to it introduces another chronicle type in the form of the faction formation story as well as the heraldric chronicle where your characters are going around and acting as emissaries between groups and it closes with kind of some ideas on how to deal with the, the lack of mentors and trying to find things and how that can cause problems as people are, are each searching for, for the things that they want to advance their magical practices within a cabal. And then it, to me, it kind of comes to a screeching halt when you get to the final section. There's the sidebar called It's All on Page XX, where it talks about training times. And I don't know about you, Adam, but nothing screams... I am willing to sacrifice a chronicle on the altar of realism than whenever we are given healing times 
or training times because to me it is one of those things where it's like oh wow this game is super realistic my character was hit by a truck and took six points of damage oh wow that was great what happened then they spent the next seven months in a hospital oh what did you do during that time nothing my character was in a hospital so like any time advancing as a person or healing is just like oh you got shot What's the penalty for that? Well, you take three off of all your dice pools. Also, your character doesn't get to do anything for 90 days, so you get to play a Custos. Um, oh, and- <laughs> so in a similar vein, it's like, I want to spend some experience points on forces too. Great. You know what? I'm I'm totally behind that. In about uh, two months of game time, yeah, we'll, we'll get you set up, but... but- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it talks about how library can help reduce training time, but mentor can divide training time. But but remember, you can botch and everything will light on fire. And it's like, ah, oh, I already spent the points on mentor. Why why would I have a background that could like make things worse for me? I just hate that. Uh, well, yeah, there's a lot going on in uh, chapter three. Uh, first off. I finally got a handle on what the revised edition writers mean by the Ascension War is over, but it's still going on, but it is over, (laughs) but you know, it's going on. What are we really talking about here? And um, I finally get it now because in chapter three, they they talk about the Ascension Cold War. And so that helped me see that the writers of revised edition kind of saw the Ascension War as being two aspects. There was the Ascension Hot War, where people were seizing each other's nodes, and there were assassination attempts, and they were storming each other's you know, chantries and contracts, etc. And then there was the Ascension Cold War, which is where people are, you know, putting out you know letters to the editor in newspapers saying, well, you know, really, this whole cultural influence is just a bunch of rot, don't you know? And basically, more abstract philosophical jabs at each other, trying to influence what uh, sleepers think. And so once I divided that up, it's like, okay, now I get it. The Ascension Hot War is over. The Ascension Cold War is still going. So that, that kind of helps me. So whenever I see Ascension Cold War in this book, it's like, okay, now I understand what we're really talking about here. What used to be called the Ascension War is partly over, but partly still going. This chapter thoroughly grounds the mage factions in sleeper society, both the traditions and the technocracy. Very, very appropriate for revised edition. Very helpful for people running earthbound mage chronicles. It was so appropriate that it made me pull out the core book again and look at the three or four page write-ups on the traditions. And it helped me see that like, oh, these are actually like snapshots of the past. This is like before the Avatar storm, this is where we were. But if you want to see where we mostly are now, go look at Bitter Road. That is really helpful. uh, Quote, the key point is that the traditions have to change to keep up with the world, end quote. And this is a a very revised edition point of view. It it makes a lot of sense in revised edition. If you go back to first edition and say that to me, I'd say, well, I'm I'm not sure I'm I'm totally on board with that. I I kind of see this and see that. But for revised edition, that, that really fits. There is, in Chapter 3, a more full explanation of heralds, and herald is a new uh, game term in Revised Edition, of course. It's it's basically a delegate or representative of a chantry whose job it is to visit other chantries and make sure that chantries talk to each other and are on friendly terms, share resources, etc. And so this explanation of heralds was so helpful and and so nice that, uh, like Terry and I were saying at the start of this, it's, it's yet another one of those things that I wish could have been in the Revised Edition core book because it was that helpful and that useful. There was one goose egg for me in chapter three. 
page 71 has a quote that I, I think they're you know just trying to be a, a little funny and trying to describe how it's hard to find you know masters of the different traditions but the way they put this uh, page 71 quote for one thing the masters of the brotherhood live almost exclusively in the orient attending to the business of culture and the like the only akashic masters in the west are middle-aged balding white guys who are fond of sphincter exercises don't ask and organic health foods end quote it's like okay first of all Trust me, I won't ask. But second of all, <laughs> uh, this doesn't sound like a very nice view of the Akashic Brotherhood because ever since the very beginning of Mage, uh, I think they did a good job of making it clear that the Akashic Brotherhood started in East Asia and spent time there. But in recent eras, it has opened up. It has welcomed in members of different ethnic groups and different nations and different parts of the map. Two, I don't think there's anything inherently deficient in Caucasian people that makes them unable to understand the philosophies of the Akashic Brotherhood. So that, yeah, that, that quote, I was just, what, what is going on with this one? But And, and the uh, funny thing there, though, is... Like they start out by saying these people are masters, so apparently the sphincter exercises at minimum work. So, like <laughs> if they if they talked about like posers or something like that, that would be fine. But like these are masters, and they've <laughs> achieved mastery by middle age, which is kind of impressive. I'm just saying, like maybe you want to put up with the granola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Terry, you know sometimes. Okay, let's move on to chapter four. <laughs> okay. So uh, chapter four kind of continues uh, chapter three and does a tour of the magical world and kind of does two things. One, it tries to explain all the other things that are out there. And it also tries to explain some things in Mage that are previously not well explained. And it starts with Leanne going on a seeking, essentially. And the seeking does two things that I think is interesting. One, it presents the idea that when you're on a seeking, you may not know that you're on a seeking, that you may not realize what's going on. And I don't know if that's been brought up before, but that is something that is mentioned a couple of times where it's like, it's useful to know the difference between a seeking and quiet. Um, and it may not necessarily be obvious, which suggests that quiet is something that happens with a certain degree of regularity. Also, that when a seeking happens, it may not necessarily be obvious, which in game terms makes sense. Your character doesn't know that you just spent the experience points to increase a retay. Why would they know that there was a seeking? Although, like, to me, narratively, a character would generally feel this, like, sense that they're about to progress and then they would start doing their meditation and the seeking would start. But this presents it as something that just kind of sneaks up on you, which I'm fine with. I also like the humble, like, sick burn that Leanne's avatar dropped, where at this one point she finds her avatar and there's this sleeping dragon. And she asks her avatar, so what's the sleeping dragon? She's like, well, that was going to be your challenge to see if you for, uh, could unlock additional mystical secrets. But somebody took a real long time to get up and explore the world, so it just took a nap. And I'm like, oh, wow, passive-aggressive avatar. This is, <laughs> this is an aspect <laughs> of the game I have not leaned into. And it talks about how the nature of a seeking is to progress metaphysically, to improve yourself. There are generally going to be three types of mages in terms of how they interact with the awakened world. They give the corporeal mage, which generally asks the question of how can I use magic to improve myself in the world? The ascendant mage, who really dives headfirst into metaphysical questions and problems and wants to deal with the awakened in the supernatural world. And the third type is the destructive mage. They could be adversarial, or they could be a character that eventually is pursuing madness or dissent. 
I like the fact that they include rules lawyers as a destructive type of mage, where it's like, ah, the worm is strong within you, rules quoter. I'm like, wow, that's <laughs> that's one way of putting it. And then it kind of dives into a detailed discussion of avatars. And this is a section that, to me, I could see as being super divisive. Because something that happens a lot of times in Mage is it just doesn't answer a question. And it says, basically, do whatever you want. And then it'll do something like, oh, okay, here's the default answer. You can run with whatever you want. And the default answer is satisfying to no one. And in this section, it talks about how you could view avatars as your soul, the subconscious, angels or demons, chunks of primal energy, shards of the godhead. But ultimately, its goal is to say, hey, this is how the avatar should actually manifest like it wants the avatar to have a more fully realized role in your chronicle and it wants you to be able to answer simple questions like what does it look like and what are its motives and it does a good thing of kind of reminding you that essence is a reflection of your avatar that influences the mage it is not necessarily a personality trait directly of the mage and that is a conversation i have a fair bit when people are like oh there's only four essences there's not enough room for my mage's personality i'm like well that's what nature and demeanor are for as well as all the quirks that you bring to the party it also talks about how resonance flaws and other things about your character should influence their seekings and may change over time it gives you ideas on how seekings should look based on essence which i found to be useful and then it says they should be fun and not necessarily obvious. And it kind of suggests something that I've always felt strongly about of your character has spent experience points. The idea that you could fail a seeking without the player's consent ahead of time is just utterly anathema to me. And it shouldn't necessarily be a trial or test to the player. It is a trial and a test to the character. I am glad that that became a little more obvious than what has been presented before. As we do that metaphysical walkthrough, the next thing it talks about is paradigm. To me, this section is one of the reasons why sometimes I just want to kiss revise. It says, one, your paradigm will change over time. That even the most dogmatic person will eventually encounter a scenario where their paradigm is inadequate or they find a flaw in it or they need some sort of flexibility. And it says, you're a mage. You get to change things. And I'm like, yay. It talks about why so many mages stick with focuses, even though they get to abandon them. And they say, well, it's real comfortable. And mechanically, you get a heck of a bonus. If you have a personalized focus and you don't need to use it, that reduces all of your magic by by two in terms of difficulty, which which I appreciate. And then the, the next thing it does is it talks about types of paradigm, and it introduces the framework of rigid, closed, open, and liberal. And normally I would say, go read it, but I think this idea is so important, I'm going to kind of give a, a one sentence of each. And, and this tries to answer the question of, what do mages think of other mages? A rigid paradigm is a character who believes that they have one true way and everyone else is doing it wrong. They tend to be jargon-lated. They have great difficulty combining their magic with anyone else. A closed paradigm is someone who says, this is the paradigm that works for me. They believe in traditions because they think the tradition treats, teaches good values, but they don't really get what other people are doing. In an open paradigm, they say, their paradigm is one truth, but there may be others that are valid. They have no issues incorporating ideas from other paradigms, assuming that it matches. And the final type is a liberal paradigm, which is to say, there is no one truth. All truth are equally valid. They will actively go out and pluck little bits of practices from other people to add to their own practices. And they generally have no difficulty working magic with others. And I thought this framework was super useful and I'm glad they gave it to me. The final magic section 
is entitled Consensual Reality and the Physics Major. And it talks about how kind of the the technocratic success occurred, but it also questions things like what was early technocratic magic like? Why are some things still hard? And it talks about, again, the idea of historical inertia, that part of what determines whether or not an effect can be done is whether or not it's always been that way. And one of the things the technocrats have done a good job is, is literally editing history to make it seem like science has always worked, which is an interesting mix of conspiratorial first edition to me and more modern sensibilities. Uh, It reiterates that consensus is local when it's like, why are the things here and in East Asia different? And finally, that one of the other reasons that the technocracy has done so well is they don't give off nearly as many weird vibes when dealing with sleepers. That in large enough quantities that paradox and resonance are entirely something that a, a mortal can sense and get a weird feeling on. And then we get kind of a bog standard walkthrough of the new phenomenon of sendings where these weird messages are coming across from the Umbra and also just a quick view over of the supernaturals and, and how they may come into a mage chronicle. This is something we've, we've talked about a, a couple of times before. I just appreciate the section where it talks about supernatural critters and you, where it says you shouldn't do crossovers. They're really different games. Uh, we've given you countless warnings that you shouldn't do that. And with that, you bought this book and you spent your money on it. So we're going to give you some ideas. It talks about the downside of dealing with either werewolves or vampires. And uh, the chapter rounds out with kind of an introduction to the other things that are running around out there. It talks about the rise of urban myths and rural legends, that you have these new hunters that seem to be running around, that sometimes in the past the hunters have been very strong and other times very weak, and they seem to be strong again. Chapter four was the chapter of this book that uh, really delves into core concepts of mage and I think it's appropriate that they do that because the developer and and authors working on a revised edition wanted to make it their own, and in many ways it breaks from the uh, common threads in the first two editions. So it was important that they put this chapter together and and help us see the core concepts of Mage through, you know, from their perspective. Page 79 has a quote that I thought was interesting. Quote, you see, we are taught the idea of mass ascension, that we will somehow lead the entire world into an awakening, end quote. And this uh, connects on with that idea that was presented in the book uh, Masters of the Art, that somehow all of the traditions believe in mass ascension or or group ascension, which uh, I guess is more of a thing in revised edition, because in the first two editions, it, it really wasn't. There was a lot more talk of and focus on uh, individual ascension. That's what one of the things that made the virtual adepts interesting was one of the, they were one of the few groups that had a lot of members that really focused on uh, mass ascension. But uh, here in revised edition, apparently it, it's more of a topic that everybody's talking about. So it, it's nice to have that spelled out for me so that I can see revised edition the way the writers are expecting me to see it. I don't like the idea of tying avatar essences to specific failings. Uh, for example, in this book, it says if you have an avatar with a dynamic essence, you're at more risk of becoming a marauder. If you have an avatar with a primordial essence, you're at a greater risk of becoming a nefondus. I don't like doing that. I don't like saying to the players, uh, here is the problem that you've got to watch out for. There are 
suggesting uh, different seekings for different essences is is nice. I, I kind of have a mixed reaction to it because I think it's appropriate and I think it's fun for storytellers who want to put more time and attention into uh, doing seekings with uh, their players. I, I think it's a lot of fun. But it could be taken the wrong way. And what I mean is a new storyteller could read over this section and say, oh, no, every seeking has to be totally different and totally appropriate for each essence. And I would say, no, not really. You don't have to make sure that uh, every seeking is very well attuned to every individual essence. If you just have a general idea for a seeking that would be fun and you want to do it with your player, then you just go for it. And then there's a sidebar with advice on essences in seekings. Um, I, I thought it went a little too far from my taste. It, it makes it easier for people reading this to fall into stereotypes of what each of the different avatars are supposed to be and how they're so different from each other. I mean, it's nice for flavor, but I think it can be taken too far. Now, on page 90, we get uh, th this quote on avatars, and it says, quote, the, quote, default, unquote, setting for a mage assumes that avatars are chunks of primal energy not really self-aware that hold memories of past lives and act as an interface between consciousness and magic, end quote. And so, yeah, I was reading that, and I was thinking, well, that's very interesting, but I have not been aware of that. I've just recently read all of the mage books that came before this, and I didn't see that, and so it's like, I would have been nice to, A, uh, know that that was always the case, if it was, and second of all, for this you know individual quote, I, I like it when the developers kind of pull back the covers in the second half of the book and say, look, here, here's the information we're acting on, and this is why we gave you all that stuff we did in the first half of the book. That's nice. But in this case, I would have just liked more information. I mean, is this something that uh, Stuart Wick thought up when he started Mage in 1993 and it's been passed to each developer and communicated to every writer? Or is this something that Bricado thought up and, and was a clarifying moment for him reading through the Mage material and making sense of it? Or did, did Heineck come up with this? Or the individual author just thinking, you know, this is how I see it. Because uh, looking at this, it's, it's a, a view on avatars that I have never had before. It's like sort of a primordial pool of energy that floats around and attaches to a mage and it helps guide a mage to be more like the mages that it was attached to in the past which could be good or could be bad if you know if, if you got my luck then you get the avatar that has always attached itself to dummies and it teaches you okay i'm going to train you to be an idiot it's like oh great darn but it. the best idiot you can be <laughs> I've been attached to mages who were full of uh, uh, hubris and, and made miserable uh, mistakes in the past. And I'm going to help you be like that. And like, Gee, <laughs> thanks. But okay, um, moving through chapter four, we get the paradigm section, which I liked the fact that they give a section for paradigm. This is something that, as Terry and I have noted many times, it is, is a big part of mage, but the first two editions didn't really deal with it directly, didn't really interpret it very closely. And so it's nice that they're dealing with it here. But at the same time, it wasn't as satisfying for me as, as I think it was for Terry. It spends a lot of time talking about how mages nowadays divide things up into the nine spheres and that colors how they see magic. It's like, well, yeah, I, I agree. That's true. But I was really looking for a lot more information out of my paradigm section. Um, it doesn't discuss even the notion of uh, personal paradigm versus group paradigm, which is something that on the Mage Discord, there's been many conversations about. Many people just read the Mage books, they make an assumption, oh, it's like this, and then they run their game that way, and then they meet other Mage fans like, oh, I didn't know that you used group uh, paradigms, I always use individual paradigms. And so it, it can lead to a lot of inc inconsistencies between games. Uh, page 93 talked about uh, some examples of the different kinds of paradigm. Terry went over them, close, open, etc. I thought it was interesting because when I saw the description for open paradigm, that really made me think of first edition more. 
in, in first edition, uh, mage society was such that there were mixed chantries where the different traditions lived and trained and worked together, and mages were constantly visiting each other's nodes and chantries and horizon realms. And so tradition mages spent a lot of time around other tradition mages, and so they had you know friends and allies who were doing magic a different way. And so the open paradigm was sort of the assumed way of looking at things. But here in revised edition, the setting has changed greatly. All the mages are on Earth. They don't have as much contact with each other. They're much more isolated. And so these other kinds of paradigms, it makes sense to introduce these to mage fans and say, look, you're probably going to be dealing with these more in your mage chronicle. So it was nice to see that. Now, now that things are different, we need some help understanding how they are different. Final section is talking about the others, you know, vampires, werewolves, changelings, wraiths, etc. And seeing how mages interact with those now. And I did not find this section to be quite as helpful. It didn't really help me get a handle on how things are different. It didn't give me much new information. So I wasn't a big fan of that section, but that wraps it up for chapter four for me. Yeah. The, the one thing I did like about the vampire and werewolf thing was it gave you a bunch of plot ideas. One of the problems I deal with in, in crossover games is how do you mix two games without completely sacrificing the themes of one or without just kind of subsuming it into the other? And I, I like those plot ideas because it's like, here is a meaty and interesting way in which these two games can in some way be drawn together, hopefully without destroying either of them. And I thought that was kind of cute. The final section is the appendix. I feel like if when we're done all the books, Adam and I were to start a reading group of some sort, it would be Appendix Readers Anonymous or something like that. Because uh, to some extent, if you've read the book already, the appendix is what is what is left over, the part that you may want to come back to. And this goes over, I'm going to say, kind of two big things. One is the Avatar Storm. And it talks about how we, we read in the Storyteller's Companion the importance of the Avatar Storm in just saying, hey, we wanted to reset the power level. We wanted to focus things on Earth. We wanted the characters to be very front and center, even at lower power levels. And it just kind of gives a list of effects that the Avatar Storm can have. You have the base damage that's indicated in the core rulebook, but anything without an avatar isn't going to be affected. So spirits and werewolves seem to be fine. You can still call to spirits across the avatar storm. Any effect that goes through it is going to be mutated. One of the things I thought was interesting is it also leaves a trace that when you step sideways, depending on how potent the effect is and how thick the gauntlet is in that area, people within a certain area are going to notice that if that is something that they're trying to pay attention to, which... I thought was was super interesting. And it also mentioned, hey, this is optional. If you don't like this, don't use it. And it's been pretty specific about that and that uh, you, you pick the elements that kind of fit in your game. And I don't remember a book this early in Revised being like, yeah, we introduced this massive thing, but at the end of the day, it's your game. Go nuts. Do what you want. And like a lot of the criticism of Revise is like, oh, you have to implement the Avatar Storm. And even in the book that's like, here are the rules in the Avatar Storm. You can completely ignore the Avatar Storm. I did not remember that this was here, but I'm, I'm glad to see that it was. It gives some ideas on using it that if you want to, it can just be a big storm that jostles everything up temporarily. And I thought that was really interesting. But the ultimate goal it seems to be trying to establish is if we cut off access to it and kill a lot of people, now there are these large metaphysical areas of the Umbra that the characters can essentially explore for the first time without masters or archmasters coming around and, and poking them around. The next section we get are some additional backgrounds, and it introduces the idea of a differential background, which 
to me makes perfect sense, which is the idea that historically, if you had allies, the more dots an ally you had, the more potent that ally was. Uh, If you wanted more minions, you should get retainers or you should get contacts. And this introduces the idea that uh, you can have multiple sets of a background, that you can have two dots an ally that represents uh, one associate and four dots in a background that represents your your vampire friend that owes you a couple of favors. And I like the idea of differential backgrounds. In addition to that, we get more information on some other backgrounds. We get alternate identity, certification, uh, fame, rank, and retainers. And these are all things that you could theoretically have, have multiple copies of. And then finally, we get a bunch of additional merits and flaws. And sure, additional merits and flaws. I don't really feel strongly about any of them. I did like the one where it was Protean Psyche, which is uh, this benefit that you do not find it difficult to take on new forms. When you shapeshift, you don't have to spend willpower to remember who you are. And I also like the little thing where it mentions you do not need to make a willpower check when you cite a progenitor monstrosity, horrors from the deep umbra, crinosform werewolves, or uh, Zemisi Zulo forms because you've been there, or at least your character imagination has. And I like the idea of your character coming across a, a Vazd or some other giant Zemisi monstrosity and being like, okay, I get you. I understand what you're going through. Let's talk. And <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to pay seven points to get that mental merit, but I really like that that narrative idea of a mage being like, oh no, we can we can deal with it. It's kind of like in D&D when you're going up against the final, the, the final monster boss and one of the characters is like, I want to cast talk to animals. <laughs> and you're like, ah, this guy. <laughs> so, so uh, just a quick thought on on this. I like the information it gave you on the Avatar Storm and possible ways that it could interface with things. I would have liked a little more detail because like, the Avatar Storm is so big that to spring it on your players, I would like some advice on how to introduce it gradually without killing everyone or, or really making people a special kind of gun shy. And I like differential backgrounds. Yeah, the appendix is the uh, part of the book that people are going to be coming back to again and again. And the fact that there's this much appendix information that applies so well to all of revised edition, and it's tucked tucked into a supplement that a, a storyteller might ignore when they're you know grabbing books off the shelf for reference material, has me a bit concerned. And then yet another reason why Terry and I have been saying a lot of this stuff it would have been great to have it in the core book or, or even in the official overflow book from the core book, this being the unofficial overflow <laughs> from the core book. Let's see, the, uh, there were a few pages for uh, Storm Warning, and uh, yeah, that is a prime example of something I would have really liked to have had in the back of the uh, Revised Edition core book because it, it talks about dealing with the Avatar Storm, uh, understanding it better, ha- how to use rules for it, for who gets hurt and who doesn't get hurt by it. It helped me get a clearer idea of what the Revised Edition authors have in mind when they talk about the Avatar Storm. and. Uh, when I was reading through it, it said um, it doesn't hurt anyone who doesn't have an awakened avatar and doesn't use sphere magic. But it also, you know, so so I, I kind of got this idea of oh, anyone who has an awakened avatar, it somehow reacts with elements in the avatar storm, and that's why there's a problem. It says oh, and it's also magical effects, but not blood magic, not not sorcery, not werewolf gifts, just. Sphere magic, magical effects, if you try to do something that crosses the gauntlet, that gets messed up. And at that point, it started sounding awfully artificial to me. (laughs) But uh, I thought it was interesting how the way the Avatar Storm is applied here, it could really cripple Dreamspeaker 
player characters. And so it does not surprise me when I find out that in later books in revised edition, they kind of ease things up, give alternative lighter rules on, on dealing with, with this. It's like, yeah, all those Dream Speaker players are going to really benefit from that. So I, I totally get that. Now, they have in here something that I don't remember from the core book, and that was that someone who goes through the gauntlet either way, they leave a gauntlet trail which the technocracy has learned how to pick up on and zero in on people. And so it's like, oh, wow, not only can you physically get damaged from going through the gauntlet, but you're going to, if if you like uh, find a place to rest up nearby, the, te- the technocracy kick the door down and grab you because they find they've been uh, tracing the gauntlet trail. There were a couple of extra uh, you know, new backgrounds for revised edition that uh, I don't think showed up in previous editions. And these are very appropriate for revised edition. For an earthbound chronicle, these make sense and they fit. And it's good to offer them to storytellers. Also, the merits and flaws in here, usually in, in a number of the supplements, the extra merits and flaws that don't appeal too strongly to me. But I, but I saw a couple in here that I, I thought were kind of cool. And so that wraps up my walk through the appendix. Yeah, I, I... The only thing I, I think I failed to mention that might be of note is it. this is also the first book, besides the previously mentioned Storm Warden Merit, that gives you some ideas on how to still have the Avatar Storm, but allow people to circumvent it. It mentions that one, shallowings aren't affected by it, and two, technocrats who use dimensional science to dissolve the gauntlet, to, to essentially bring the gauntlet to zero, or in their case, nine, uh, within a construct, also don't have to deal with the Avatar Storm. So I thought that was interesting that, that we're only two books in, as it were, and we already have the authors going, oh, by the way, there are ways around this, which is interesting because Bill Bridges, when he was talking about revised and the meta plot changes there, they wanted to make it harder to go to the Umbra, but they didn't want to completely bar it and they didn't want to make it instantly lethal. So as revise goes on, we get more and more ways that you can circumvent the Avatar Storm. And this gives you two. Overall, there was a bunch of stuff that felt to me like it should be in the Koruak. And I guess the other thing to me was is uh, when Adam and I talk about books, a book is usually obviously for a player or obviously for a storyteller. And this was obviously for both people, which even more so makes me say that I feel like a bunch of this was in the core rule book. I don't know how you would comfortably do that, but it seems like between Bitter Road, uh, Storyteller Companion, and the core rule book that things could have been reshuffled. I, maybe it's one of those things where, given that the core rule book was 300 pages pretty well on the button, no matter how you shuffled things, there would always be something where Adam and I would go, hey, this should have been in the core rule book, and books are finite in size, and if you just keep adding things, you wind up with M20. Uh, so, so that Ooh, I fully understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that I fully understand. Stand. Overall, I, I, I guess I don't have a huge number of comments. I just thought it was, I thought it was a real good book. I, I didn't think I was going to enjoy it, but it really brought together the new visual style. You've got a lot of Lobenstein and Langton Foss illustrations. You have the sometimes more creative fonts that I wish they didn't use. You've got Visitation as a font uh, front and center. It does a good job of just telling you things, and it does that that revised thing that I like a lot, where there's just a lot of story ideas. Sometimes that is the result of dropping a massive metaphysical change in the in the universe by being like, oh, by the way, this is the nature of avatars. And you're like, wait, hold on. Can we can we go back a topic? Can we go back a page? But overall, it gives a bunch of ideas. It's perfectly reasonable. And this is a book that I would give someone an M20. 
Like if you're like, oh, what, what can we actually play? In fact, uh, Storyteller Vault supplement and authored by friend of the show, Sebastian Freeman, Believe in Magic, does the same thing where it just says it's M20. It doesn't tell you what to do. Here are a bunch of ideas that you can play. Also, that supplement is uh, pay what you want on RPG. The link will be in the show notes. I was impressed with how effective Bitter Road was. It had a job to do, and it did it very well. It very effectively explained to me how is the revised edition setting different from the the setting of the first two editions? How can you work with what has changed? How can we clarify and expand on things we dropped in the core book, but we didn't have a lot of room to talk about? It just opened things wide and really helped me understand what was going on. And as Terry was talking about recommendations, um, I would definitely recommend this book. I would recommend it for for two groups of people. One is if you want to uh, run revised edition for some players, this book gets helps you get a very firm handle on revised edition, getting it, putting it all together for you, and explaining the fuzzy parts. And also someone who just you know is a mage fan and they just like mage and they want to know more about mage and it's like they want to get an understanding of help me understand revised edition what was basically going on here then definitely read bitter road uh, even better than core book i think explains what this world is like what's going on here and what you can do with it and what we expect you to do with it what we had in mind when we Mm -hmm. dropped all this on you that was really very good for me this idea that avatars are now external, and uh, one or two books previously it talked about how uh, maybe we can't trust avatars. Maybe we should uh, think twice before we listen to their advice. That was new for revised edition and very, very interesting. This book really steered into it directly and helped us see that. And I like having the choices. I like being able to, to grapple with this. Previous editions of Mage, especially second edition and late first edition, they didn't explain the nature of avatars in details. They just said, look, uh, mages disagree on this. There's a lot of theories out there. Nobody knows who's right. And I actually prefer that approach to it. But it, it was nice that even though they kind of steered into it and said, this is what we as writers really think of the avatar, they, they gave different choices. Saying, Here's how you can mix it up, do it differently. I guess as a, both as a player and a storyteller, my issue with the external avatar is the idea that I can't implicitly trust it. In the first two editions, you know, just trying to think as a mage player, as a person who might be in that imaginary world, if someone said to you, hey, your avatar is your higher self, and it's helping you, you know, move towards your destiny. That was the basic idea of, of early mage. It's like, oh, okay, so when this thing comes to me in a seeking, I, I feel like I can open myself up and trust this. And wherever it's leading, even if it's, you know, someplace I feel uncomfortable with, I'm, I'm going to trust it on that one. With the external avatar, my thinking is, well, nobody knows much about avatars, okay? It's some other thing from somewhere else that has decided to attach itself to me and very, very closely because it shows up in my thoughts, it shows up in my dreams, but I don't know who it is, where it's from, or what it wants, and so I'm not sure I can trust this. And so I'm just, just my l- outlook on this was, if I was playing a mage character and and some you know NPC in the setting said, oh yeah, the avatar is it's an external thing, it's from somewhere else, and it's connected to you now. I, I don't know if I'd trust it. I'd be thinking, oh, you're showing up and you're seeking, you're trying to guide me towards something, but you're not giving me a real clear indication of what that is, and I don't know your agenda. I don't know what you're after, and I'm not sure I can trust you. But then the the core mechanics of Mage is if you don't pass your seekings, you can't increase your irite, you can't learn more dots and spheres, and so it's like seekings and avatar are very, very, very baked into Mage. Yet at the same time, if, if you're not sure you can trust your avatar, it's like, how would I even approach all of these things with Mage? But again... 
as a mage fan, it is very good to present these quandaries to your players because you can have a lot of good role-playing based on that. This quote stood out to me on page 80. Quote, just because your character awakened doesn't mean that he has to give up on his causes. Mages can be just as active in Greenpeace, the Republican Party, or the local PTA as any other person, end quote. And this is a, a very, very revised edition outlook on things. Uh, in the previous edition, especially at the uh, foundation of Mage, it was kind of the opposite of that. There was this idea that mages have awakened to a wider world and they just can't go back to the concerns of their former life. Those things just ring hollow now that they've seen a much bigger uh, universe out there. And so that notion is kind of removed from revised edition. It's one of the things that, that makes it different. And it's nice to have these quotes that help me put that all into focus. And it was interesting to me the way it kind of tried to convey that because it was like, well, if role-playing can only be had by focusing on things outside of the magical experience, then what do you do as a werewolf or a vampire? Which is kind of a faulty comparison, but um, it, it does kind of lean into the idea of, well, if, if these mundane aspects of a character's life aren't interesting, then what are we doing with all these other games? And I feel like this may have been partially a response to shifts in the RPG market, where it was kind of moving further and further from um, what Robin Laws refers to as F20 systems, where it's uh, fantasy high adventure, to something that was progressively becoming kind of more and more intimate, for lack of a better term, that was about exploring kind of everyday relationships. Now, Mage always had that. You could always do the Chronicle about dealing with your, your Chantry mates and so on. But this went one step further and said, let's give you a hardy option that we endorse that says also you can still deal with the, the mundane aspects of being human, which in general I was perfectly fine with. And at least in my games, I have found that generally for the first year, for the first six months or the first 10 sessions, people are really into the magical aspect of things. And then... Uh, they love running around through chantries and exploring the Umbra and so on. But at some point, they're like, okay, what makes my character a person? And you kind of have to bring those other elements back in. And if you have some from the start where you're like, oh, also your character is a member of a rod and gun club or your character is an antique card collector or something like that. I, I think that gives a, a lot of role playing options. And it's to me good to have the book kind of be like, hey, you may want to keep some of these things. Uh, Masters of the Art said, oh, no, you need to do this. Otherwise, you're going to get super out of touch, almost as if it were a mechanical concern, which it then introduced mechanics for. But here, it's a little more subtle about it, and it's just kind of a reminder that there are, there are a lot of really interesting things that happen in the mundane world. Actually, thank you, Terry, for setting up my next point, because yes. it segs exactly into the uh, large, uh, I guess, section or possibly sidebar that it starts uh, on page 80. And um, this was the most illuminating thing of the book for me, actually. And I was, it was so glad that the authors put it in there, because it explained the author's point of view on this. And that helps me understand why Revised looks the way it does, why it works the way it does. Authors made it clear in there that what they consider to be rich role-playing is when your role-playing games deal with regular people dealing with regular problems. That like was the key that unlocked everything for me. It's like, okay, now I understand where you guys are coming from, what you want out of role-playing, what you like, what turns your crank, as they say. And so... I can understand because my point of view is when I come to really any role-playing session, whether I'm running or playing, I like unusual people dealing with unusual situations. That's what gets me excited for role-playing. That's what I like. And so, yeah, Mage First Edition gave me 
hearty helpings of that, and that's why I will probably always uh, love that presentation of Mage. And so I can understand now why revised edition isn't my favorite edition. It's because the people putting it together really wanted regular people dealing with regular problems and how relatable that is for the players at the game table. And and I understand that. I'm really glad that that option is there for Mage fans. Now, I'm going to get a bit snarky here and say that when I was reading this section, I was actually remembering an old-time uh, Sesame Street Burton Ernie uh, bit where Ernie is you know playing pranks on Bert and it's it's uh, Bert's upset because he can't get on with his story reading and Bert was holding this book that has real bold letters on it boring stories <laughs> so Bert reads he's like reading from the book and he says the the prince drank a glass of water that's fascinating this book is amazing it's like that was that was my, basically my point of view when i was reading through this section that started on page 80 it's like oh you could be a member of a political party or you could be a member of a pta that's amazing so it, that's just my own personal baggage uh, it, it's like i want to deal with the guy who's saving the universe from cosmic forces that's just that's what i like and so now i understand What's going on under the covers for Major Vice? I'm so glad that the authors just opened up and, and shared this with us. Cause now, now it all makes sense. Now I know how to approach this. I do find it interesting that my mix of the mundane and the fantastical has changed over time. That the amount of mundane elements in a, in a chronicle for me have generally increased versus uh, before when I tended to do high action, run and gun, uh, very metaphysically involved games. And now there is a, a healthy dollop of the mundane. Maybe that is still a form of wish fulfillment because in my Chronicle characters can still go out to uh, parties and nightclubs when we, we at current cannot. <laughs> so so maybe that is an aspect of it. Or alternatively, it's one of those things where all the players in my group are in their mid-30s and it's like, my character's going to stay up late and suffer no consequences to it because they're a mage. And I am perfectly fine with that form of wish fulfillment in my my games. The next book we're reading, I think, is Dead Magic. Yes, exactly. Yep, this is a, this is a book that explores the idea that initially revised had the plan of uh, the traditions of the traditions. We've given you an update. We don't need tradition books, so let's give you a whole bunch of other types of magic. And Dead Magic was kind of one of the first ones. It's a it's a black dog imprint. So we're going to be checking that you have a per parent permission slip before you listen to the next podcast. And my quote for this one is I'm going to cheat and have two. The serious one is after Ozymandias Cody awakens, has this dream that has been fulfilled for the first time and he saw all these people die and he, he had to charge across through uh, non-existent space to escape. And he says, I feel like I've been run through a garlic press. I coughed up blood, mucus, and other weird substances. I think I touched something really out there today. Perhaps it was the source, that elusive universal energy that powers all of my creations of fantasy. I want to do it again. And I'm like, yep, they're a mage. That's that's why when people were like, if I were a mage, I'd be blah, blah. I'm like, nope, I'd be a sleeper. I don't want to have to deal with any of this stuff. I have a mortgage. The other quote that I just thought was really sharp was on page 89, where it is a character talking about talking with other avatars. And this one was, I attempted to speak with the avatar of a marauder. I never quite succeeded, and I am not sure why. What I did receive was a nearly month-long quiet. Repetition of this experiment is not recommended. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Put it mildly. Yep. Yep. Take us out, well, I'm gonna, I'm going to break the mold. I've, I've got a <gasps> quote. I'm not going to make this a regular thing, but this quote stood out to me so much. It just, like, I had to put the book down and, like, get my, get my head together. Page 81, quote, 
there is nothing wrong with developing spheres in Arete, overcoming foci, expanding paradigm, and improving magical backgrounds, end quote. It's like, oh, good, that I've been playing mage the right way for so many years. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, that quote. I was like, okay, well, with that, I think we're ready to lead out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, we gave you something to think about today. If you have something to say to us, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other sources now. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in other people's searches. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there, see the complete show notes, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of goodies there that we can share for you after we put everything together. This episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, John Magnuson, uh, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, uh, Chris Zack, Christopher Phillips, Bryce Perry, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, Michael Parker, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes for you, and we would certainly appreciate it. Uh, you would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change the world. Bye. <laughs>